Well, it's great to see you guys here on this uh, Sunday evening. Um, it's always encouraging to see uh, many of you come to church, especially when the weather outside is so fantastic. That's such a beautiful, uh, lovely um, yeah, afternoon of sunshine and, and sun. So great to see you guys here for worship at this uh, evening service here at Calvary Chapel Freiburg, at Church at Five. And uh, as Stephen has just read from the Sermon on the Mount, that would remind you that we're continuing this evening our, our series here on a Sunday evening through our Lord's great sermon that he held there on that mount, on that hillside in Galilee. And just, I think it's good to remind ourselves um, regularly when we're about to hear the Word of God, um, as we do this evening, as we're about to do right now, we are not here approaching this text dispassionately and distanced, um, reading this text or hearing this text merely from a, a standpoint of historical curiosity or analysis or a comparative religion, thinking, hmm, I wonder what Jesus, the teacher, had to say, comparing that with other rabbis or other religions, keeping it at arm's length from our own lives or our own hearts, but rather when we come here as Christians uh, in our worship services uh, on, on the Lord's Day, on Sunday, to hear the Word of God read and then expounded, we're, we're doing so because we receive it for what it truly is, namely, not the words of mere mortal men, but the Word of God, and spoken to us by the one who is himself the Word of God enfleshed, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that means what we wanna receive when we hear the Word of God on a Sunday evening is spiritual nourishment, spiritual food to strengthen us for the week ahead, to strengthen us as we walk this week in this city as Christ's disciples, as salt and light in this place for the season that God has called us to be here. And it means we realize that the Word of God, as we read in the letter to the Hebrews, is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword and able to pierce to the marrow, that is to get right down deep into our lives, into our hearts, to penetrate, to rebuke us where we're on the wrong path, to correct us, to set us on the right course and to confirm us as we follow Jesus. So that's what we expect tonight and that's my invitation to us that we, that we remind ourselves of these things, that we, that we don't come and just hear the word sort of wash over us, but that we receive it as the word of God and we expect the Holy Spirit to be speaking uh, through the word Sunday for Sunday, uh, and especially as we go through this series on the Sermon on the Mount. So may the word of the Lord speak clearly and loudly to us this evening, and uh, those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. So you may have noticed, and I would encourage you at this point, open up your Bibles if you have them as an invitation, but it's, uh, it's gonna be good to follow through as we look at the text and make notes, highlight things. Um, that's, a, that's a good it's a good a habit uh, to have. And you may have noticed, as Stephen read the text for us, uh, this part of Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount is, is very clearly divided into two parts. So firstly, Jesus lays out, this is verses 21 and 22, Jesus lays out a doctrinal teaching. Before, in verses 23 to 26, he then gives us its application. So in other words, in this text tonight, Jesus is saying, here's what is true, here's, this is my doctrine that describes reality, and here's now how you have to respond to that truth, here's how you have to act in light of this truth. Doctrine and then application. And we're just gonna follow that two-part structure 
in this sermon uh, this evening. And so let's begin by looking at what Jesus tells us is true before moving on to the so therefore go and do this section in the final three verses. Let me read again now verses 21 through 22 so that these verses are fresh in our minds as we consider them together. Verse 21, you've heard it said that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone says to anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, which means fool, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, right at the outset, let's let's just fit a few things here together to make sure that when it comes to understanding Jesus' words here, because these are strong words. I mean, I know that most of us have heard the Sermon on the Mount, but when, do, we, do, we, do, we take, do we realize here what Jesus has said? That if we're angry with each other, and if we say to one another here, you fool, that we're in danger of the fire of hell. We want to understand Jesus correctly here. And so let's take a few moments at the outset to, uh, to fit some things together so that we do get Jesus right. Uh, the doctrine that Jesus lays out here is not said in a vacuum. It's not said in a vacuum, but it follows on, doesn't it, from the text that we read last Sunday. This is the next portion or section of Jesus' sermon. And that section we, which we read last Sunday, of course, follows on from the sections before that. So, to help us fit some things together here at the start, we need to take note of three things. We need to take note of of three things. Firstly, last Sunday we read this in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Do not think, said Jesus, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And starting with our text this evening we have the first of what are going to be six examples, six examples where Jesus shows us what fulfilling the law looks like. So Jesus last week spoke about how he had not come to abolish the law, do away with it, get rid of it, but rather he'd come to fulfill it. And as Jesus is preaching this, as he's preaching about the kingdom of heaven, he's inaugurating the kingdom of heaven, and he's going to show us now, he's going to give us six examples to show us what fulfilling the law, the law of Moses, looks like in practice. Now, the first example is the, our example here this evening, as Jesus talks about what it really looks like to fulfill the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments, namely, you shall not murder. So, Jesus himself says he has come to fulfill the law and he is the only one who in and of himself does fulfill it and fulfill it perfectly and yet he lays out for us here examples of what the fulfillment of the law looks like. So that's what we're dealing with this evening, what the fulfillment of the law looks like. Secondly, we read in each of these examples a phrase like this. In our example this evening, it's in verses 21 and 22, Jesus says something like this, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, dot, 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 then verse 22, but I tell you. What's Jesus doing here with this phrase? He's gonna, it's going to happen six times in the coming weeks. Jesus is not contradicting the law of Moses. He's not saying, as it were, you heard, you know, back then, this is what was said, but I tell you, I'm putting that aside, but I tell you something else. 
That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not contradicting the law of Moses, but rather Jesus is actually giving us understanding. He's, he wants us to go deeper. He's going to indicate the right and deeper meaning of the law of Moses and its implications for our lives. And as a side note here, it's astounding, I think, to see Jesus' claim to authority here. Who was it who spoke to the people long ago on the mountain? It was, of course, God. There was a visible manifestation of God in the cloud with the lightning and the thunder. The people were in great fear and were fearful even to approach the mountain. And they said to Moses, you go up and speak to the Lord face to face. We don't want to die. We don't want to speak to the Lord. You go and do it for us. So there's a, I don't know what that was. So there's this sense of God was the one who'd spoken this law to the people long ago. And Jesus is not saying, I'm contradicting God and he is now my teaching. In effect, this is one of the ways Jesus is saying, I am on the same level as God. I speak with the same authority as God. I am telling you what the fulfillment of what God said to the people long ago actually looks like. And what is Jesus saying? We could sum it up right at the start, and this is something that you, if you're taking notes, you might want to write down because this is the the essence of what Jesus is teaching. He's saying that obeying the sixth commandment, given to us in Exodus 20, verse 13, namely that we shall not murder, requires not only that we keep our hands from spilling blood, but that we maintain heart fellowship with our brothers and sisters. So to fulfill this command means not only that we keep our hands from spilling blood in actual murder, but that we maintain heart fellowship with our brothers and sisters. And the third thing to take note of right at the start so that we fit things together rightly here is This, we read last Sunday in verse 20, Jesus said, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That was verse 20. As Jesus gives us these examples of what fulfilling the law looks like, he's showing us, he's showing us, he's giving us examples of righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law of the law. The the idea here is that the Pharisees and teachers of the law had looked to the letter of the law, not the spirit. That is, thou shall not murder, or you shall not murder, was understood in, in terms of its letter. As long as you weren't guilty of spilling blood, then you'd fulfill the law. And Jesus is saying, no, you need, in the kingdom of heaven, there's a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and this is what it looks like. And so he's continuing here to proclaim the kingdom of heaven that he began in in this chapter in Matthew 5 and verse 3 saying, talking about those who go into the kingdom of heaven, saying blessed are the poor in spirit for to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. And now he's showing us what kind of righteousness characterizes the kingdom of heaven, a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, uh, a righteousness that has to do with the true fulfillment of the law. So I hope that sets, sets it up a bit so that we can understand what Jesus is saying here this evening. So what does Jesus say about the sixth commandment? Again, verse 21, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry 
with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I remember the soft-spoken rector, that is minister or pastor of the church in which I grew up back in Sydney. In one sermon, he, he was a very soft-spoken, gentle man. And I remember in one sermon, he, he looked up and looked down to the back pews, because we had pews in those days in that church. And he, and he said quietly, you would have had to listen hard to hear what he said. But he said quietly, but in a moment of spiritual authority, that what he was talking about that Sunday, that this is serious stuff. He had that ability, that, that moment of authority to really, even though he was speaking quietly, to really grab the church's attention. And I remember that moment uh, all through the years down to this day. And I think it's a good uh, analogy to help us understand this text, that what Jesus here is speaking, what Jesus here says, shows us that anger is serious stuff. It's a serious business. Anger is. Look at what Jesus does here in our text. Again, verse 21 and 22, Jesus is linking anger. Jesus is linking anger, which is an internal heart emotion or feeling. He's linking that to murder, which is an external action of the destruction of a human life. He's linking those two together. Murder, he says, was subject to judgment. And if we look back in the Old Testament law, we understand that the judgment described is capital punishment the death penalty, and Jesus uses the same phrase to describe the consequences of anger. If you're angry with a brother or sister, you'll be subject to judgment, same phrase. And indeed, Jesus raises the stakes, doesn't he? And establishes the seriousness of this matter by saying, not only are you in danger of facing judgment here on earth with the courts, but in fact, you're risking the fire of hell. So anger is serious stuff. Now it's important to say at this juncture that anger itself is not necessarily evil or sinful, is it? God gets angry. God gets angry and in God there is no sin, he is holy. We sing in the Psalms, it's a great Psalm, it's a Psalm of great comfort and encouragement to us that God is slow to anger and rich in love. He has compassion on all that he has made. So God gets angry, so therefore anger cannot in and of itself be sinful or wrong. God's anger is righteous anger at unrighteousness and injustice. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, gets angry. There's one uh, incident in Jesus' life that we often think of when it comes to remembering how Jesus was angry, and that is uh, related to us, for example, in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus is At the synagogue on the Sabbath, there's a man there with a withered or shriveled hand, and Jesus heals this this man's hand, and it says that the Pharisees who were there, and the scribes and the teachers of the law, they were bitter towards Jesus that he would have done this thing on the Sabbath, this this healing. And it says that Jesus was angry and had anger at the hardness of their hearts. Jesus knew anger. And Paul says to us in Ephesians 4, verse 26, he says this to the Christians at Ephesus and therefore also to us, he says this, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. And I think this gives us a clue 
that we need to understand what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. This little verse here in Ephesians gives us the clue we need to understand what Jesus is saying here about anger in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Jesus links anger to murder. He links the internal heart attitude of anger with the external action of sin that is the destruction of a human life. And so what we're to understand is that anger is the kind of emotion that pushes us to act. Anger is the kind of emotion that pushes us to action. It's a strong emotion. It seeks an outlet, often in action, whether that be words and shouting and rage, or indeed, indeed, and, and also murder. The Roman Stoic philosopher uh, Seneca, who was a tutor uh, at some time to the Emperor Nero, wrote a treatise on anger, de ire, it's called in Latin. And in that treatise, he, he gives a, a wonderful, in a sense, um, description of the physiological changes as anger overcomes a human person. He talks about how the, the, the brow furrows and the, the face flushes red with blood as the uh, fists clench and the teeth, it's, quite, it's worth reading if you're into that kind of stuff. So this is, this is an emotion that is strong. It seeks an outlet, anger. And Jesus is saying, this is a strong emotion that is gonna push us to act. Righteous anger can push us to act rightly and oppose unrighteousness and injustice. That's the kind of anger we want. That's the kind of anger we actually need. As followers of Christ, we should be saying, Let's, let us be angry when we should be angry. Don't let us look passively on at unrighteousness and wickedness and injustice and not be affected. May we hate what is evil. May we be angry at unrighteousness, the mocking of God, injustice, and so on. Righteous anger, still dangerous, because anger is that kind of emotion, but righteous anger can push us to act rightly. And there are times when it's right to be angry and it would be wrong to remain unaffected. But because we're sinners, a powerful emotion like anger can easily move us to sin. And that's the context in which Jesus is talking about anger. He's talking about it in terms of relationships. He says if anyone is angry, not at the weather, not at you know, a poor result on an exam, not at world hunger, but he's saying if anyone is angry with a brother or sister, so the idea is relationships within the kingdom of heaven, within the, the people of God. That's what Jesus is talking about, that's the context. Let me give us another verse from Ephesians 4 from Apostle Paul to help us understand. In Ephesians 4 and verse 31, Paul writes this to the Christians, to the church. He says, get rid of all, and this is the same chapter, sorry, where a few verses before he said, be angry and do not sin. So we see there's a difference here between righteous anger and not sinning and then wrong anger. Because here he says, get rid, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Go on and forgive each other, he says in the next verse. So I think we all know what kind of scenarios Jesus and Paul are talking about, are getting at 
If we think back to even maybe the last week or the last month or the last years of our lives, we know that there are situations where we've been angry at a brother or sister, at someone here from the congregation or in our lives. We've been annoyed at someone because of something that they did. Maybe they snubbed us. They didn't invite us to something. They forgot something important in our lives. Maybe they disagreed with us in front of other people and we felt that that made us look silly. Or maybe we're jealous of what they have, their achievements, their academic achievements, or their, their good looks, or their clothing, or how they seem to just be liked in social groups, and, or we're insecure and we're envious, therefore. We're, we're insecure with ourselves, and therefore we're envious of others who we think are doing well and standing strong, and that translates into anger in our hearts and, and bitterness, and for some of us, rage and slander and malice. We know those kind of situations. That's, that's part of what it is to be a fallen, sinful human being. And I think you'd agree with me that that's something we can all relate to. And so Jesus is warning us here, the kingdom of heaven is no place for this. It's no place for anger or murder. And undealt with, this kind of anger risks the fire of hell. Undealt with, this anger risks the fire of hell. That's Jesus' doctrine. That's Jesus' teaching here on anger. So what, what does Jesus say to do about it. What does Jesus say to do about it? Verse 23, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. The application here is very simple. If you've fallen into the sin of anger against someone or the related sins that we saw from Ephesians 4, 31, bitterness, it's often related to anger, rage, a heightened form of anger, slander, the result of anger that we talk negatively about others, or malice because of the anger in our hearts towards someone, we plot what we could do to bring them down. If you've fallen into these kind of sins, then, and you're now at risk, as Jesus says, you're now at risk of judgment and hell, what does Jesus say to do? And I have to say, for me, this has immediate application. It has immediate application. Um, we, we were here this morning at church as a family and we drove home from church, you know, lovely afternoon, myself, my wife, our four kids, and uh, there's another, there are other families who live in the same building as us and they'd probably been enjoying a peaceful Sunday morning. The birds are twittering, you know, the sun is shining. And then our family arrives home and our house is quite, um, hellhurry, I don't know how you say that in English anymore. Sound travels easily in our house. And within a few minutes of arriving home, there was a bit of screaming and yelling and hitting and fighting between our kids. And I came upstairs to sit in the office and just go over the notes for this afternoon and I just, I felt this, this well of anger rise up in me. Because I thought, this is, this is the Lord's day. You know, we've just come home from church and now we're disturbing the whole house, probably the whole neighborhood with this screaming and yelling and anger. And I felt this anger come through my body 
at my own sons to think, oh, they make me angry. And that's not a good place to be in as a father, especially not when you're about to go that evening and preach about anger at church. Or maybe it is, because now I have something to, to tell you guys. But all, all that to say, this has immediate application for me. I don't want to be the kind of father or the kind of husband or the kind of man who is an angry, hot-headed man where I make myself, therefore, at risk of the fire of hell if I don't repent and deal with this and get rid of it. So I want to know what Jesus has to say about what to do when I've fallen into the sin of anger, and I'd hope that you want to know that too. The application, though, is simple. Jesus tells us to be reconciled, doesn't he? He says that right there in verse 24. Go and be reconciled to that person with whom you've been angry. The main idea here is that, what I said at the beginning, that heart fellowship be restored between brothers and sisters in the family of God, between brothers and sisters in the kingdom of heaven. What I mean by heart fellowship being restored, I mean that we're not just, there's not just a sense of um, ceasefire and of outward tolerance that we can get along with each other and that we can you know, live, you know, we can be in the same church and, or be in the same uh, small group or, or be at the same workplace and tolerate each other. That would be just outward tolerance, that would be just a ceasefire, but rather there'd be true reconciliation and restoration of heart fellowship, that we're restored in our relationship together, that we're no longer holding on to bitterness, anger, resentment, or um, sin in our hearts towards that person. So Jesus says here, if you've fallen into this sin, then you need to repent, that's the go part. You need to actually get up and go, which means you have to understand that my anger in my heart is wrong and I need to deal with it. So I need to go and deal with it. Then I come to the person who I've been angry against and I have to confess and make restitution, I have to make it better have to, and then so, that, so that we can be reconciled. I have to say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I've been bitter towards you, I'm sorry that I got angry at you. I'm sorry, I was angry in my heart at you and I've been giving you the cold shoulder for the last three weeks. I've been avoiding you at church. I've been ignoring your messages, whatever it might have been. I wanna be reconciled. And the point here is interesting. It, we may not see that initially or immediately, I should say, but we are the ones to take the initiative. Even if the other person might also have faults to answer for and may not be without blame, we are the ones to take the initiative. Both times Jesus says, hey, if, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, so that is if you're sitting there and you remember, hey, he's got something against me at the moment because I was angry with him, then I need to go and, initial, and take the initiative to seek reconciliation. Not, not sit there thinking, yeah, I'm angry at him because he did this and I'm gonna wait until he comes to me. No, Jesus says, if you know that someone has something against you because you were angry at them or bitter or whatever it might have been, then you need to get up and go and take the initiative to seek reconciliation. You need to take the first step. And listen to this. Jesus says here, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has sister, your, or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First be reconciled, then come offer your gift. Jesus speaks here in terms of temple worship. 
the temple in Jerusalem, a gift being given at the altar of the temple. But it is applicable to the church's Sunday worship, what we're doing right now. Anger is serious stuff. Let's not just brush over Jesus' words quickly here. Sin undealt with leaves us in danger of hell. Sin undealt with leaves us in danger of hell. We're gonna hear the same phrase from Jesus next Sunday. It can make us uncomfortable, but that's the way our Lord spoke. And therefore, because sin is so serious, and because it leaves us in danger of hell, therefore to deal with that sin, to deal with our anger, to go to a brother or sister with whom we've been angry or bitter or jealous and repent and confess and be reconciled and have heart fellowship restored is more important than even, than even other important things. It's more important than even other important things such as our duty to gather together and worship God on the Lord's day, to hear the word, to pray and to partake of holy communion. It's that important. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's more important that you go and be reconciled with your brother and sister and have heart fellowship restored than that you come to church on a Sunday evening. That's what Jesus is saying. If you wanna come to church and you realize, nope, there's a lack of reconciliation between me and a sister or brother in this fellowship, then you need to go and make reconciliation first and then come to worship. It's that important. That's what Jesus is saying here. And all I can say is, you know, look, seeing the, my own anger in my own heart this afternoon and being confronted with that again and thinking I don't want to, I don't want anger and strife to characterize our family home. I want there to be an aroma of peace when you come into our place. All I can say is may, may, we, may, I, may, may I obey this word of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we obey this word of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be a congregation here at Church at Five and a church family here at Calvary Chapel who take this word of our Lord Jesus seriously. May we pursue peace and reconciliation and fellowship in our church family with those around us in our lives as something of first importance and who therefore take Jesus' teaching about the seriousness of sin seriously. We're gonna take communion today. You can see the elements just here, ready for the consecration. And, and so I want to enjoin this upon us. If upon hearing this word um, this evening, the Holy Spirit and your conscience have made it clear to you that there are relationships here maybe within this fellowship, but I would extend it out to those, to colleagues at your workplace, or those with whom you study, that if, there are, that if the Holy Spirit and your conscience have made clear to you as you've heard Jesus' teaching here on anger and on the true fulfillment of the sixth commandment, that there are relationships that are out of sync in your life where you have been angry, bitter, slanderous, that is saying nasty things about people behind their back, malicious, plotting evil in your heart against people, if, that, if that's characterized some of your relationships, or you know that someone here at this church, a brother or sister, they know that you've, some, you've got something against them and you've kind of been avoiding them or giving them the hot cold shoulder, then I really wanna encourage you to make good on what Jesus says here. And if that person is here today, then in a few moments time when we come in to celebrate communion, then I would encourage you 
to go up and be reconciled to that person. I know that's maybe for some of you, that's a big call, but that's what my encouragement would be. That's how serious Jesus views this issue. And if that person is not here today, then I encourage you to refrain from taking communion this evening and be reconciled first. Put it on your to-do list, top of the to-do list for this coming week, maybe on Monday morning or if you have to start work early, Monday afternoon when you get off work or when you get home from studies, I'm going to, I'm going to make arrangements to be reconciled to that person as far as it's in my power to do so this week so that I can take, partake of communion the next time the church celebrates the Lord's Supper. And if the Holy Spirit has brought a person to mind with whom you're no longer in contact, perhaps even they no longer are alive, they've passed on, then as we prepare for the Lord's table this evening, I would say confess your sin where you know that I've been guilty of harboring that bitterness or that anger in my heart all these years. Confess your sin and ask for Christ's forgiveness and then you have to give that to Christ and and give it over to him. The rest is up to him and then come and partake forgiven of the Lord's table. But let me add this. I think the danger is, this kind of text comes around every so often, but not every Sunday. And so the danger is that I might have touched some heartstrings here tonight, but that this truth will be forgotten by the next time we celebrate communion next month. We celebrate communion once a month here at Church of Five on the last Sunday of the month. So it might be forgotten. You think, oh, I really tugged at the heartstrings tonight. Yeah, I really feel it. But it'll just drift, you know, those thoughts will drift away. They'll subside and they'll be gone by the time we celebrate communion next month. Again, I would say here, let it not be so. This is not some kind of stunt that I'm telling you to do this one Sunday and then not think about again. What I have said to you now, I believe, is the standard that Jesus sets for the kingdom of heaven at all times on every Sunday, every time the communion is taken. And I appeal to you to see it so also. So, that's what I will enjoin on you this evening as we prepare to take communion in a few minutes. Let me leave us though with five really staccato practical points to help us avoid anger that leads to sin and deal with it when we fail. So these are five quick points for us to take practically into our lives for the coming week, the coming season. Number one, be slow to anger. Be slow to anger. James 1, 19 through 20. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, James writes to the Christians, let every person be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. Guys, we should have a, sh- we should have a long fuse, not a short fuse. We should be hard to offend, hard to upset, hard to anger. We should consider all that Christ has forgiven in us and therefore be compassionate and merciful when we come into contact with others, even if they say things which initially would seem to get us upset. We should have a long fuse and be hard to get angry. Number two, assess your anger. Assess your anger. Ephesians 4.26, we heard the first part of it earlier. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. 
That is to say, what is making me angry? If you find yourself starting to get angry, you need to ask the question, you need to assess this anger. What's making me angry? Is it justified? Am I justified to feel angry now? Is, am I able to be angry now and not sin? And would the Bible back me up on that justification? Or am I just deceiving myself? Assess your anger. Assess your anger, Ephesians 4.26. And then, number three, deal with anger quickly. Deal with anger quickly. And I would extend this even to righteous anger. It's not good, as we're going to see from this text, to remain angry for long. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity or no foothold to the devil. Don't let the sun go down, Paul says, on being angry. Don't carry that anger into the rest, into the peace of the evening and be angry the next day. Limit it to a day. The idea is if you, if you limit it, you're not giving an opportunity, a foothold to the devil, to the enemy, to sow seeds of long-term resentment, bitterness and broken fellowship in your life. You need to deal with that anger quickly. Ephesians 4 27. Number four, learn to overlook. Learn to overlook things. There's a few verses we could have taken here. Uh, James talks about this as well, but here's one from Proverbs, Proverbs 19:11, And I'm reading here from the ESV. There we read, good sense makes a person or makes one slow to anger. And it's his glory to overlook an offense. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it's a glory, it's a good thing to learn to overlook an offense. To say, I could be upset about this, this was wrong and I could get angry, but I'm not going to. I'm gonna choose not to be offended, not to be angry, not to make something out of it. As we heard from Stephen in the call to worship from the Psalm, blessed is that man against whom the Lord does not count his sins. The Lord knows how to overlook sins in our lives and we should practice overlooking things in order not to feed the fire of anger. It's a glorious thing here to be able to overlook an offense. And finally, number five, put anger aside and forgive. Put anger aside and forgive, Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Again, we heard the first verse earlier this evening. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, Paul writes, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Instead, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Paul is saying here, put this stuff away. Put this, get rid of anger. And I just want to say, sometimes it can be helpful to just make a conscious decision to speak to ourselves, to preach to ourselves. For example, as the psalmist does in Psalm 42, this is, so this is a biblical thing, okay? It's not weird to talk to yourself. Just putting that out there. Psalm 42, we should preach to ourselves. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? This is a good thing to do. Speak to ourselves and say, I'm going to make a conscious decision. I'm going to put this anger away. I'm going to put this anger away. I'm going to ask for the Lord's help in doing so. Put anger aside and 
Don't put it aside in a vacuum and say, all right, I'm just going to push it away from me. Fill that vacuum with, some, with, with a positive, uh, godly uh, response. Instead of filling our hearts and our minds and our thoughts with anger at somebody, push the anger away, make a conscious decision to, put, to be rid of it, and instead fill our hearts with the, with the compassion and with the desire to forgive each other. And Paul says here, just as in Christ God forgave you. Again, the idea is we, if we meditate on how much God has forgiven us, that can't help but make our heart soft to forgive those who may have offended us. So, five quick things here to how to deal with anger. Be slow to anger. Assess your anger. Is it righteous or not? Deal with it quickly. Don't let it fester and manifest in your life day after day, week after week. Learn to overlook Learn to overlook and put it aside and forgive. All right, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you that it was your desire to give us a deeper understanding of the fulfillment of the law, to show us um, what the heart of the law is, namely love for our God and love for our neighbor. And Jesus, we thank you that you went on to fulfill the law for us, and that it's your righteousness which is imputed to us by which we can stand before you. And so I pray as we hear these words this evening, we'd be encouraged, we'd be encouraged in the sense that you are a holy God, that you take sin seriously, that the kingdom of heaven is a glorious place to be because it's a place where sin and unrighteousness and wickedness is dealt with. You are powerful to deal with sin and unrighteousness, but encouraged also in the sense that while we ourselves cannot make ourselves right with you, we cannot obtain by our own effort the righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, that you gladly give us that righteousness when we come to you and are reconciled with you, when we ask forgiveness for our sins. And so Jesus, we pray now that you would meet with us as you invite us to your table as we celebrate Holy Communion. We pray that you would bless this fellowship and this church with true peace, with a true spirit of reconciliation, not a superficial uh, ceasefire or tolerance of each other, but a real uh, reconciliation that we have heart fellowship Uh, with each other. We pray this by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.